what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Pat. New year. New year. New ads. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for new ads. It is time for new ads. We've had a wonderful year of sponsorship by our four wonderful people that carried us throughout the year. Truly, the sponsorship that comes from these guys, Jason Furman, Einz Wiener Dog Quip. <laughs> Jason was the first person to reach out, like episode one, hey, I want to sponsor the show. We're yep. like, fuck off, mate. Then <laughs> <laughs> several months later, we're like, uh, we could do some of that money now, yep. Jason. So we apologize. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank mm. you so much. Mm. But truly, where I get all my dog-related items mm-hmm. is Einswick Dog Quip. And amazing hoodies. Yeah. No, I do have a really good hoodie from Jason. Yeah, I've got a great hoodie from Jason yeah. as well. But I continue to get all my stuff. When I need dog training gear, Jason's my first point of call. Yep. I just bought a mill off him again. for Another mill? Yeah, for my sister. Yep. I'm going to do some little mill content. He is incredibly generous and very supportive to the industry. He is. And doing amazing work on his weight loss as well. So go, Jason. His problem, though, is doesn't ship to the US. Oh, what an absolute turd burglar. Step in. Macla Point. Macla Point. Oh, are you talking Mark with a C? Carkla Point? <laughs> Canine Dynamics. Yes. He's in Canada. Yeah. Uh, well, he does service the whole world, but just stay out of Jason territory, fucking Macla Point. Ooh, North America. Who do you reckon would win between them? Mark's a cop. He has a gun. Yep. Jason has guns. Yep. I don't know. It'd be an interesting battle. If we can organise it. Let's do an MMA match between Kakla Point and <laughs> Furman. <laughs> Not really. Love if them both. So if you're in North America and you want some dog gear, yep. Canon Dynamics, that's a place to get it. Yes, absolutely. Great range, really good website, very intuitive. It makes life so easy to order product. Yep. You know who else has been supporting the show for a long, long time? That would have to be the lady herself from Ashland, Virginia. Melanie the the train town. Yes, Melanie Benware. Yep. She does these little home school things. Yeah. And I think the reason that our listeners should be getting in contact with her is because they know someone mm. in Ashland, Virginia that needs their dog homeschooled or they want to learn about that kind of program themselves and they, as a trainer, could book a session to get some time with Melanie Benware. And she's been busier than ever, which is great. Yeah. Hopefully she's got some transactions from the canine paradigm. Yes, hopefully. Mm. You know where you could get a killer Dutch Shepherd or German Shepherd? That would have to be the wonderful people, Patrick and Alicia Lockett from House Amberg. One and the same. Yep. That's them. If I were in Europe, and Europe's the place to get the dogs. Yep. If I were in Germany, that's where I'd go. But mm. the good news is you don't have to be in Germany. They can ship all over the world. All over the world. Mm. You want yourself a sweet-ass Dutchie? Yep. Talk to them. Or a German Shepherd. I don't know why you'd want a German Shepherd, but if you do... Oof. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. The best ones around will come from them. That's a sponsor killer in itself. (laughs) No, really, those guys have supported the show for a long time. Jason from the start, Mark, Mel, and Patrick and Alicia at House Amberg Shepherds. We really appreciate you guys supporting the show. And good quality people as well. Good quality products. 
moving forward on that, we only take those sponsorships from those guys because we know them, we trust them, we believe in them. Yep. Going forward into 2022, we know that some of you fucking fast forward these ads. Oof. Not everybody listens to the ads. Absolute disgusting. So we're thinking, we're not, nothing's set in stone, but we're thinking about changing the structure of the ads at the front to yep. give our sponsors better value and maybe just reading one each time and mm-hmm. then bringing more people into the rotation if that's something people are interested in doing. Yes. So stand by for information on that. So if you do want to be a 2022 sponsor and you're happy to continue with us, let us know. We'll be canvassing that shortly. But for those of you who have been supporting us, just like our wonderful listeners, we just want to thank you very, very much. Really appreciate everything you've contributed. All right. We love you. We do. Bye. Goodbye. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house because I've got the Rona. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook, who's at the studio because he lives there. And joining us all the way from, I'm going to say it once correctly, Hawaii and never again, is Sue Chipperton. Sue, thanks for joining us. Hello. Nice to be here. Hawaii. 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 <laughs> I'm going to use my Australian accent. I, I bastardize everything here. <laughs> Hey, Sue, yeah. you're our first live guest on the show this year. Yay. It's been you. a while. Like Pat and I have been backwards and forwards thinking, oh, we should get a guest. And then we've come together and we've kind of got something to talk about and it just hasn't happened. So congratulations on being the first 2020 live guest or recorded live guest on the show. Great. 2022. 2022. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the years have just all melded into each other. Everything's just turned into a Rona fest. Now that Pat's actually got it, he's actually officiated the whole Rona thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm in. I'm mm. in part of the crew. Yep. You guys are on the out. I'm, I'm part of it. This whole, thing, this whole two years has been for me. You're part of the Borg now. Anyway. You've been affiliated into the collective. Hey, Sue, let's talk. So we met online, I don't know, what was that nearly two years ago? It was right at the start of the pandemic and you reached out and we've been sort of talking ever since because you have the fascinating career of training dogs for TV and movies and so forth. So tell us about that. Let's get right back to the start or you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us like, what is it that you do? Well, I moved to the States from England when I was 18. I, first of all, I started at a marine park. So I was an assistant trainer training marine life, dolphins, sea lions, otters, that kind of thing. And a lot of people that came to work there came from a school in California that um, it's an exotic animal training management program. It's a two-year program. And a lot of the people that come out of that program either go into veterinary care or they train studio animals, they go to zoos, marine parks. And I think at the time I was making a whopping like $7 an hour working at this marine park and these people were showing up and their friends were doing studio work in LA. And I think like at the time they're like, yeah, they're making $20 an hour doing studio work. This is a long time ago. And I'm like $20 an hour. And I just packed my bags and drove from Fort Lauderdale to Hollywood. So I landed there and made the rounds to all the different animal companies and no one was hiring. Now I know that most of the animal companies usually hire like one or two people a year as interns. Half the time, those people never work out. They end up leaving because it's a lot of work as it is with any animal job. And 
I kind of got distracted along the way and went off and worked for, as you know, Chippendales. <laughs> it's a whole <laughs> other podcast. Yeah, it's uh, different type of podcast yes you mean and, chippendales um, like the dudes who strip down to their boyfronts and wear yes. the cuffs and the bow ties yeah wow okay guys. yeah that we're getting we're really getting into some animal training now yes <laughs> so got a little distracted with that for a couple of years and then uh when my boss was arrested um by the fbi for uh murder and arson and a whole slew of other things i thought maybe i should get back into uh what i came out to <laughs> california for what the hell is going on here this show has just digressed into no man's land <laughs> <laughs> Because you posted something about that on Facebook recently. That was a big, big deal at the time, wasn't it? He was extorting yeah. someone and it was a big murder case and then he ended up killing himself in jail. Or Yeah, like it was- he, hung him- he hung himself in his jail cell like the day before he went to trial. Yeah. Did you actually work for the Unabomber or what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the guy that, that uh, invented and came up with the, the concept of Chippenales and we had touring groups all over Europe and I think even down there in Australia and – yeah, he was just, you know, greed takes over. And mm. he had written agreement with his partner and he ended up, that guy ended up unfortunately getting killed, which they later found out was a murder for hire that he had arranged to get him out of the way. And uh, yeah, a bunch of other things. He, you know, a few dancers jumped ship and went over to a different dance troupe. And then he was trying to off them along the way. And we had a standing joke in our office we had a boring, I mean, you'd never imagine our office in Santa Monica was actually the headquarters for Chippendales. It was the most boring industrial looking building you've ever seen with a two-way glass to the parking lot. So we could see who could, pull, you know, who's pulling in. And we would joke when a car pulled in, we are like, well, that doesn't look like, you know, an unmarked police car or the feds. And we would just say that jokingly. We knew there was like nefarious things going on, but we weren't really aware of really what was going on until one day the feds actually did pull up into the park and yeah they they carted him away and and then i decided i should get back into the animal training so i made my rounds to um the animal companies again and landed at studio animal services in 1994 as an intern and started working for them this is almost uh, like the reverse of the tiger king (laughs) it's almost like in reverse complete reverse yeah how does that work into that field like you just rock up one day and you say hey i want to do this and you had no training like you know no grounding in it beyond probably growing up with pets or something like that so as an intern you're an unpaid learner on yeah yeah so exactly i grew up with pets and we always had dogs and i was always bringing stray dogs home and loved animals rode you know horses and and of course i had my marine mammal you know, world training, but that, you know, I, so I understood the concept of training, but doing studio work is a whole, it's a, it's a very different animal, no pun intended. So you start off basically just uh, working for free, tagging along with the senior trainers on set, just being on set and learning how to stay out of the way and do your job and not be distracting yet. You're working a dog and, the whole myriad of things that goes along with that. You learn that from your, you know, from the senior trainers. And then, you know, when we're not on set, we're training, we're training dogs, cats, birds, squirrels, rats, whatever we, you know, we needed for, for work. So you move up as quickly as, you know, as you want to move up. Our turnover was high. 
I was there for 21 years and, you know, you'd hire new interns and, you know, we'd all take bets on how long they'd last because it was a lot of grunt work, a lot of cleaning. I mean, we had 80 dogs, about a hundred cats, just a lot of cleaning and feeding and exercising and training. So if you weren't cut out for that kind of work, then you didn't last long. It's super fascinating to me because I'm so far removed from that part of the industry. And I think, I don't know if you were there in that conversation we're having the other day, I've sort of thrown my hat in the ring for a movie. It's kind of, (laughs) for some reason, I've always wanted Remy to be in a movie. I don't know why. I just have always wanted that. And then through some strange hookup, I've been interviewed for this giant, it's going to be huge, huge, huge movie. And the dog is a reasonable part in it. The dog has like, I think. You're going to be a stage dad. (laughs) Yeah, I can't, I'm under a bunch of NDAs, so I can't sort of, it's not going to even look like Remy. So that's the most annoying part of it. It's just, they need, it's, it's going to be a whole different animal, but he's just going to be wearing the CGI thing to move. Oh yeah. Who are you working with? Are you working with an animal company in Australia? No, no, it's directly for the art department that approached me. Um, And so it's a weird hookup. I don't know if it's even going to happen, but it's a fascinating industry to me. And I'm especially interested now but with that studio that like the the company that you work for, I'm really interested to understand. So you said you had like 80 dogs and a hundred cats and you had ferrets and birds and all kinds of stuff. So how does it work? Like you just have a, a menagerie full of animals that are trained for various things. And then they put their hat in the ring. They tender for a job, I imagine. And then they get it. And then it's like, okay, we're going to use Fido and Sue. You're going to, you're going to handle Fido and Fido comes out of the kennel and you get a, a period of time to train him specifically or yeah, I'm yeah. guessing. What's it like? Well, let's move on to like where I'm actually training now and I'm no longer just tagging, watching people. So yeah, we all have our dogs, cat teams, all the animals that we kind of liked that we would train ourselves. You know, I always like to go pick my own dogs out of the shelter and train them rather than somebody tell me you're training that dog. So yeah, to start with, I was assigned certain dogs. And of course, for the learning process, our boss always gave us trained dogs to work with. So we didn't mess anything up and then figure out when something falls apart, how to go backwards in the training and and make it work. So, but yeah, we were all assigned five, six dogs and then cat teams have teams of cats that like four or five that all look alike. So you never just take one cat on set. Obviously (laughs) that day would be over real quick. So you have four or five cats that all look identical that you can interchange. And I had ducks were on my list we had a big campaign for an insurance company called Affleck that uh, used a duck as a mascot and for a lot of commercials. So production company would call and say, you know, we have a commercial coming up and we need a cute dog to interact with a family. And so we would submit all of our dogs that were suitable to be around children and whatever action they had sent us the script or the storyboards to figure out which ones were suitable. And then from there, the production company works with the client and the ad agency. Ad agency is the one that usually, well, they're the ones that create the commercial. And they all work together and do casting much the same as they would with an actor or an actress. Sometimes it's pretty straightforward and easy and they pick the dog or the cat right away. They love a certain dog. They see a little training video or whatever and they they love it. And other times the casting process can go on for for quite a while. And if there's nothing that we have in our kennels that they like, then we expand the search to other animal companies. So there's a dozen animal companies in Los Angeles. We all work together. 
So if the client is looking for an Afghan hound and, and we don't have one, then we'll go over to another animal company and, and submit their Afghan hound for the job. And then their trainer would bring that dog to set with us. So we all work together. All of our commands are verbal and hand signals for the dogs, cats. We tend to just use the same so that I can't tell you how many times I go show up at another animal company at four o'clock in the morning, walk into their kennel and get a dog and go to set with it. And I've never worked that dog before. You know the trainers, you know what they work like. You have to kind of take that into consideration. Like when people work my dogs, I always say here in Hawaii, my, one of my uh, trainers is very quiet. And when she works my dog, she's very quiet. And I'm like, just remember who trained this dog. <laughs> you know, like I'm really loud. And I'm like, my dogs aren't going to pay attention to you if you whisper to them. So you get to work with a bunch of different animals. And so you take those, those uh, whatever they pick to set. And a lot of our work at Studio Animal Services where I was was commercials. That was our bread and butter. That was what we were known for. There were other animal companies that specialized in the big animal movies. Like there was a company called Birds and Animals Unlimited. They were, and, and Boone's Animals for Hollywood. They were notorious, for, not notorious. They were, <laughs> they were known for their big animal movies. They did the Stuart Little and 101 Dalmatians and those kind of movies where it was just very heavy animal action throughout. But we did commercials and it was nonstop. Like we'd get a call on a Monday to show up and shoot on a Friday. And we had a very uh, quick way of training. And even though it's all the same, you know, when we would get busy and we would hire trainers that normally worked for those companies that did feature films. Uh, I had one trainer say to me one time, wow, you guys really like pull it out of the hat and they're able to do this super, super quick. She says, we get, you know, four months to train and prep our animals to work on set on a movie and you guys do it in like a week. That's what we did. And that's what I did for 21 years. It's like five days a week. That's a good yeah. point you just brought up, Sue. I haven't done a lot of wrangling work. I've done some in the past, like many, many years ago, I did local TV and just, you know, various bits of ads and bits and pieces here and there. And one of the things that I always found frustrating and one of the reasons why I didn't really want to pursue it anymore was because I found that producers and executives have these really bizarre concepts when it comes to animals, like they have no real connection to them. And sometimes when you turn up on the set, like they've given you a run sheet of what they want you to do and what to train for. And then you turn up and they say, oh, okay, so we're going to do that, but we've also want to do this, 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 and this, and then this. And you just look at them and go, we've not discussed this before today. And they go, oh yeah, but you know, like if we give you like half an hour to go out to the park or something like that, do you reckon you could throw it together? There were times <laughs> where I'd just look at him and I'd say, like I'd look at the guy that I was sort of, he was kind of like the agent and he'd just go, look, give me a second, I'll have a word to him. You know, like we didn't actually agree on this. So you try your best to get it to some level of being able to do it. But sometimes the requests were just crazy. And I just thought this is, yeah. it's too frustrating to work with people like this. And then some of the actors were just like, some of them were really good around animals and some of them were so prickly and stiff. And I mean, I know that's their problem and not yours, but it was difficult to try and pair a dog up with them when they're sort of sitting all rigid and they're tight and their right. shoulders are all stuck in and they, they're people with very funny expectations when it comes to animals. I don't know if you, if you find that from time to time. Yeah, I'm always very hesitant to go work on a set when I have not spoken to the director. Mm. And a lot of times producers will try and not a lot of times, 
But there are times when you will be speaking to the producer, the producer's the one that hires you. They're the ones that are sending you the script and the storyboards or whatever. And yeah, this is, the dog just has to be on leash, walking down the sidewalk with an extra, it's fine. And then you get there. And of course the director's like, okay, we need the dog to run around the corner. And, you know, like the, the person's uh, next to it, but it's not on leash and they're on rollerblades. And, and they're, <laughs> you know, and so it just goes, it gets crazy. And so I really try not to, I try not to put myself in that situation where I don't have a conversation with the director beforehand. It does happen on occasion, but that's one of the hardest parts because you know, you're going to show up and the director has no clue what the producer has been telling you. And there's no communication between the two of them as far as what the animal action is. So luckily for me, especially in Los Angeles with commercials, we had a lot of, we worked with a lot of the same people over and over again. A lot of the, same production companies and directors. So we had a lot of good working relationships with people and open communication um, with some wonderful directors. But yeah, I, I totally have had that happen before and it's super, super frustrating. And I'll, I'll just, I mean, I'm there are, there are trainers out there in my industry that are yes people and they will be, oh yeah, we're going to make that work. Yeah, sure. I can try it. Oh yeah. And it's not that I'm not... I mean, sure, I want everyone at the end of the day to walk away and be happy. But when I've been given what I consider false information and my dog is not prepared, one of the biggest things for me, which doesn't, you know, a lot of people are not, but for me is to protect my animal on set. So I'm not going to put my animal, whatever that is, in a situation that is going to be stressed. It's not going to know what it needs to do. There's going to be action going on that it's not been prepared for. I'm just not going to do it. So I'd rather lose the job and be, you know, like, I'm like, look, you never told me that this car was going to come flying down the street and around the corner, you know, and my dog's got to sit on the sidewalk. This is something that we train and we prep for so the dog is aware of what's going on. That's my biggest thing. That's, that's one of the things that I get really serious about on set is protecting my animals when I'm working. Yeah, I hear you. I remember this gig that I did. It brought flashbacks to me when you were talking about your experiences. I did this gig a while ago, not long after I got to Sydney, and it was working with this comedy crew. A lot of the work that I was doing was with comedy people. This was a two-day sketch they wanted to do where I had a big male Rottweiler and he was a quite a placid dog. He wasn't a handful or anything like that. But in certain situations, he could get a little fired up over things. So what they wanted him to do was hop into bed with this girl and her cuddle up to him in bed and everything like that. I said, look, that's fine. He'll love that. He's going to, that's his jam. Uh, he'll be all over that. No problem. But then when I got there, she was in bed. He was next to her and she was cuddling him and, you know, like they were playing this music and it was all good. So they're getting the film. And then this guy comes running in the room and he was just about to jump on the bed. Like I've grabbed him. Director's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's the talent. And I go, dude, he can't do what you want him to do. He goes, oh, he's just going to jump on the bed. And I said, this is going to end in disaster. I'm telling you now, like this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. And he's looking at me (laughs) cockeyed like, what the hell are you doing on my gig? And I'm thinking, you guys are complete peanuts. Seriously. So we end up having a massive argument and I grabbed the dog and stormed out. And he said, well, you're not getting paid. And I said, dude, I don't, I don't want to get paid off you. You're a peanut gallery. Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is exactly what you don't do with animals. Right. Yeah. I've been in the same boat exactly and just had to step in and just 
physical comedy for me is actually the hardest thing. Action, stunts and action and gunfire explosions. Yeah, that's hard. But to me, physical comedy, when everyone is just being overly exaggerated in their body language and it's slapstick type stuff Mm. for the dog is usually for me, like what I find the hardest for the dog to, to be comfortable with. I think so many people feel like it's a lucky break for them to get their dog on TV and sometimes they'll bend and they'll compromise on what's acceptable and what's not because I've been with colleagues over the years and they've told me the same sort of thing and I said, well, what did you do? And they said, well, what can you do? Like you've got a camera. And I said, you can tell them to fucking pull the head in. That's what you can do. They can't do that sort of stuff just because they've got a camera and they're, they're movie or TV people. They can't put your dog's safety or their safety or even the actor's safety at risk and have it turn into a complete and utter shit show just because they want to do something left of what they asked you to do in the original script and then it turns into something quite dangerous or something you just don't know what it's going to lead to. I mean, even younger people when they've done it before and they've said to me, what would you do? I said exactly what I have done before where I've grabbed the dog and, and left the show. And people say, well, you know, isn't that unprofessional? I'd say, do you think that putting your dog's complete and utter safety at the risk, even when you've tried to talk to them, like when you've tried to explain it, and they're still trying to argue their way out of it and tell you that you're being an unreasonable person? And most of the time, you know, like you said, there's a lot of time when you're going on there and you're working with professionals and it's fun and you have a good day and the actors are having fun and they all love to have a cuddle of the dog and it's a big deal for you because you get your dog on TV, you feel good, it's something a little bit out of the ordinary you've done, but not in risk. I mean, this is the exception to the rule. I'm talking about some silly things that go on, but that doesn't always go on because most times when you turn up there, people are, are professional and they do want this to be successful and they do right. they do invest their time and knowledge and expertise in it. So, you know, they expect you to know what you're doing and you hope that they're not going to be unreasonable about it. Yeah, totally. Mm. Hey, Sue, what's the wildest thing that you've been on set, like a training-wise thing where you haven't been prepared for it, but you've pulled it off? Like something gone, oh, I don't know if I can do that. And then you did. I don't know, because here's the thing. It's a double-edged sword when that kind of thing happens. See, when they don't tell you what's going to happen, a lot of the times it's because they don't want to pay you to train. So that's where my beef comes in. It's like, you don't want to train the prep time, you know, so I'm prepared to go on set. You want to tell me it's just something easy and you know, I have a good dog. So I'm going to show up on set and do it. Well, I know that's what you're trying to do. So I'm not going to do it. I'll do something, but you didn't tell me this was going to happen. You didn't tell me that the dog had to ride in the back of the pickup truck, you know, whatever. So I'm not that yes person that will just like bend over backwards to do it because then I'm rewarding them for bad behavior, right? They're trying to get something for nothing. Mm. And it behooves them to actually just plan ahead and say, look, if we actually want the dog to do something right or the cat or whatever, then we we need to pay them. Like everybody else gets paid. You know, they pay carpenters to build the set. Why don't they pay the dog trainer, you know, five days to train the dog. So there's a difference between that. And then uh, I did a movie one time. It was um, a low budget film with one duck, but At the time, I had my ducks that I was using for the insurance commercials. And the director came to the ducks and she'd written this whole script about this duck. This is a classic example of where I had bent over backwards for her because she, when we were talking about the action for the duck, and which started off as a duckling and then grew to an adult duck and this duck followed this guy everywhere. Her expectations, first of all, were really low. And she would just say, 
whatever you can do. I mean, I'd like for this to happen, but whatever the duck wants to do in that scenario is fine. Like if we could just get him to walk like two feet to the left, that would be great. But if he doesn't want to, that's fine. And so I was like, oh, I can get him to walk two feet. So because she was so accommodating and she was such a nice person and the script was so fun, like for me as a trainer with these ducks to, I had 12 of them. So I could, you know, all their different personalities, I could pull whatever duck I wanted. So that's an example where I bent over backwards to whatever she wanted. I did because, you know, and they paid us, you know, training time ahead of time. And then when we got to set, it was just like 30 days of just shooting this movie and, she didn't think she was going to get that much, but she got way more than she anticipated. So I guess, awesome. yeah. You've had this like giant fascinating career and I do want to sort of tease that out a bit more, but before we carry on, you know, you've been doing this more than 20 years. I think, when did you say you started in the nineties? 94. It's nearly tw- it's 28 years or something like that. Tell me about the type of training that and, and how that's evolved over time. Like, so when you started out, what did the type and nature of the dog training look like? And how is that in Hollywood now by comparison, you know, nearly 30 years later? I mean, there's, there's little things that have changed, but we're a very small group of people, like studio trainers. And like I said, in LA, we all work together. We all learn from one another if we are teaching our dog something new or a little bit different. Well, Hey, have you ever done this before? What would you do and see, you know, from our other trainers. So I guess the biggest thing is when I started, like my two bosses, Paul and Karen were very much my Paul was, uh, he had kind of like you, Glenn, he had like the, the Rottweilers and the shepherds that he would go do security work for. And that's where he started before he did studio work. And then Karen worked <laughs> like Tiger King. She worked for like a jungle place and exotic animals and stuff like that. But as far as her dog training, they were all, the Kila method was their whole, you know, their starting ground for training. So it was, you know, choke chains and that kind of thing. A little, little heavy handed, not terribly. You've got to imagine our dogs need to work on set in front of people and they have to have good attitude when they do it. Obviously we're not going to shut our dogs down. Um, and everything we trained was positive reinforcement. I mean, I was, I was using a clicker from day one back then training everything. So nothing really has trained changed that much. I, I really have to say it's all kind of, we're all kind of in the same boat and it's just basically when it comes down to behaviors, like if we haven't done something, we'd just go to somebody else and ask them, but it's all been the same positive reinforcement and, you know, not much aversive training at all. We have to pick the right dogs. So the dogs that, you know, we would go to the shelters and, or the rescues and look for the crazy, fearless, knock over trash cans, tear up your couch, all the ones that nobody wants that we would then channel all that energy into training and making them an awesome studio dog. Yes. On occasion, the dog would get cast. They'd want a breed of dog that was kind of hard to find. And just by the nature of the breed, they're probably not as outgoing or fearless as, you know, like a lab or a golden or shepherd. But most of the dogs that we had were that kind of personality. Mm. You know, they have to go on set and they have to perform. Sometimes we're doing the same thing. Like, 30, 40 times, you know, you do a master shot of the whole 
scene is the first thing you shoot. And then you go into coverage of the actors. And if the dog is in the scene for all of it and they can see the dog, then that dog has to be there for all the takes that you do the master shot for. And then every take on the actor plus close-ups and it's a lot of stuff. So you have to pick your animals really carefully. It hasn't really changed. That's why when I contacted you, it was right at the beginning of COVID and I had been listening to your podcast and I started to hear the way you guys were talking about training. And I'm like, how come I've never heard these terms before? Or, you know, like, why don't I know this? I feel like I've been a trainer for 20 something years. And, and I mean, I've always felt like I'm constantly learning. I've never, ever, ever thought that I know it all. Like I'm always wanting to learn from trainers that have been in the business longer than I have. And when I reached out to you, I was like, I want some new tools in my toolbox, you know? And I came to realize that I've been working so much in LA back to back that you don't stop and kind of reflect on what you're doing. You don't think about the job you did on Monday because you're already doing a job on Thursday. And it's just constant work all the time. And for the most part, your job goes successfully. You move on to the next one. Well, in Hawaii, it's a little bit different. I have a little bit more time on my hands. So I have more time to reflect on the jobs and I'll sit around and think about like what I could have done better. Why did it go like that? Why did the dog walk, you know, over here and sit down instead of like going over to the actor? Whereas I would not have taken the time to actually like consider all of those things. You just kind of move on and go to the next job. So listening to you guys talking on the podcast, (laughs) opened the door to a few other ideas that I had not heard of before. How did you get onto it? I think I heard you on another podcast. You were, I can't remember which one it was, but you were both on being interviewed by somebody else on another podcast. Was it Working Dog? Uh, Yeah, it might have been Working Dog Radio. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, maybe. That was a fair while ago. Yeah. Hey, on the topic of reflection, you've written a book. (laughs) Yeah. Tell us about that. (laughs) It's called The Famous Dog's Life back in 99, 2000, 2001. In the States, there was a very famous little chihuahua called the Taco Bell. Was it just the States? We know everything about that little Taco Bell dog. Yo quiero Taco Bell. Did you hear? Have you heard of it? We don't even have Taco Bell in Australia, but we had the ad. It was everywhere. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Taco Bell is very famous. Yeah. But that ad, so that ad, I don't know where I'd seen it, but it, we, it was, everyone in Australia knows the- Yo quiero Taco Bell. That's yeah, so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was Gidget. So I got Gidget when she was eight weeks old. I'd gone to a breeder for some puppies for a job that we were going to just borrow her little puppies for a print shoot or something. And she had this little chihuahua and a puppy pen in the back room and, I, and she was jumping up trying to get our attention. So anyway- I called my boss and I said, I want to get this little dog. She looks, she looks really good. And so we bought her and she lived with me for her 15 years of life. And I trained her. And when she was about six, she got cast for the uh, Taco Bell commercial. And you have no idea when you go to shoot something, you don't ever anticipate that it's going to be a national campaign for two years. And so she was actually cast for the very first commercial was a male supposed to be a male chihuahua and a female chihuahua and she was cast as the female she is a female and then this other chihuahua was cast as the male and that was going to be the the hero dog that was going to be the main Taco Bell dog and when the director saw the two dogs she was bigger than the male dog and he like 
the look of her better for the lead part. So they switched it and made her the main dog and the other little dog, the female. Yeah, you always know when you're, you've kind of done something cool. I never actually did that commercial. So I was working on something else and another trainer had to take her and do that job. But when it aired, I was on set and I heard people talking about it. It was still obviously back in the day where you had to watch a TV show and you had to sit through the commercials. It's not like streaming where you can just fast forward through or whatever. You actually had to sit there and watch commercials. And I remember hearing the crew talking about, hey, did you see that Taco Bell commercial last night with that little chihuahua? And I thought, oh, that's interesting because, you know, crew don't usually talk about stuff like that unless it's really cool. Well, then she went on to shoot. We did about 40 commercials, most of them not seen national commercials, uh, probably in the range of about 15 commercials. And then she did regional, which only show up in certain areas of the States and then test market, you know, whether just fool around and see whether they like it or not. And at the end of the day, she did about 40 commercials. And so my book was based on her story. I had a, an editor from People Magazine come out to LA to do an article on dogs in film and television. And they had the Taco Bell dog and a bunch of other animals from different animal companies. So when the idea came up, somebody had mentioned to me about writing a book. I contacted this editor uh, who I had kind of hit it off with and I, and I, she had already written a book with somebody else. And so I said, Hey, would you be interested in doing this? I know nothing about writing a book. So basically I just lay on the couch every Saturday and told her stories and she wrote. (laughs) And, (laughs) and it's the Taco Bell's dog story and peppered in between all of it. That is my story and the jobs that I did and funny little things that happened. And I think the publisher was like, Oh, it'd be really cool if you did a little training tips in there. And I'm like, how's that going to work? It's like a autobiographical book. book. Hmm. I'm put little training tips at the end of each chapter. <laughs> How to what, teach your dog to sit. Yeah. But that's what um, publishers and directors and editors and all those sort of people do. They just have these funky expectations. <laughs> Hey, just um, get your dog to drive a car while you're there. That'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a fun experience. And I got some, was very lucky to get Reese Witherspoon to write the forward for the book. Because I'd right, because her on she was Legally Blonde. Yeah, right. Okay. So she's the Chihuahua in Legally Blonde as well. Taco Bell dog was not. So that was another Chihuahua that I trained. The Legally Blonde dog was a different Chihuahua. And I did the two movies, the Glee Blonde one and two with Reese with a spoon and Gidget, the Taco Bell dog. She was in the second movie, but she was not the main dog on that. So yeah, it was kind of cool to have her write the forward for the book. And then other like Clint Eastwood wrote a little piece for one of the chapters because I had people write at the beginning of each chapter, a little, little blurb on how it is to work with me on set. Jeez, now you've got my attention, Clint Eastwood. That's quite a privilege. Yes. My boss had a huge, long working relationship with Clint working on movies. And I'd worked on some as just this assistant. And then the first time my, my boss could not go do it, I went to do Gran Torino. Oh, my God. And, oh, um, seriously, I'm, I'm having a, a fanboy moment. <laughs> I love that movie. I've seen it so many times. It's such a good movie. He's such a funny guy. And I knew what he was like to work with before I went, thankfully. So that the Labrador that was in that movie, 
here's a very different style from any other person I've ever worked with as, as an actor and as a director. And so I had read the script and it was his, obviously it was his dog in the movie. And I just trained this dog to do what we call a go with, which is an off-leash heel. Just go with somebody. You tell them to stay with that person and they stay with that person. So for like two, two months before I left for Detroit to go shoot the movie, every time I'd go on set, on a different job, I would take the Labrador with me and with another trainer or whoever I was working, I would just make her stay with them on our downtime for five, 10, 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, I don't care how long it is. You're just going to stay with them. And so it worked out perfectly because when we went to shoot it, Clint is very, he doesn't want a trainer standing on the sidelines, like waving their hands around and telling dogs to stay. So I literally just put, treats in his hand. He put them in his pocket and I could have gone to craft service and just sat down and had a coffee and the dog stayed with him. I mean, I, I never gave that dog one command other than you're with this guy and I'll be over there if you need me. <laughs> so he did, he did everything. That's so cool. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, cause it just hasn't come up. We've never discussed it is where did you learn to take such cool photos? Cause you are also <laughs> a like, super accomplished photographer as well. Like you've Thank done you. some shit, man. And where did that fit into all of it? Did that come from being on set and having an interest in it, in the like the photography side that was happening on set? Or was that just an independent thing that came of your own volition? My dad was a very, very good hobbyist photographer. We have tons of color slides of our childhood, like just amazing. And he'd win competitions and whatever for his photography. And then my brother-in-law is a, BBC was, he's retired now, but he was a BBC set photographer. So I'd kind of been around photography and cameras and always liked it. And I did like a few little in school, like, you know, when you go do work experience for a week or whatever, that was my thing. I'd want to go find a photographer and go work with them. So I was, I was always interested in it. And then I kind of, and would always take my camera with me wherever I went. And then the dog photography, pet photography, I started in LA kind of a long time ago and I didn't really have a style. Now, when I look back at those pictures, I hate them. I just, they're terrible. Like I can't even look at them anymore, but since moving to Hawaii and the scenic backdrops that you have here for being able to set dogs up for photos is amazing. And, but I always, you know, I also do the surf photography and everything. I like photographing everything, but yeah, it's just doing it, taking lots of pictures. You just get better and better the more you take them. So why did you move to Hawaii? Let's tell it like break pace and tell us, well, well exactly that. I just gave it away, hey? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I had been in 21 years in LA working at Studio Animal Services and I was done. I was done with Los Angeles. I wanted to move away from there and I didn't want to move to the other places in the United States where there was a lot of film work, which wasn't that many places. There was Atlanta was just kicking off. They were just getting started with their building studios and starting to film that. Now it's huge. It's just massive in there. I don't like Atlanta. New Orleans at the time was huge. Anywhere that they give like tax break do for, for people to go film is usually when it becomes like a hot bed of filming. And so New Orleans at the time was, there was a lot going on there, but I'd been there and worked on movies and did not like it. So I just had, I just didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to stay in Los Angeles. And then in 2013, I came to Oahu and I worked on Godzilla 
and we had to train. Had to train Godzilla. I didn't realize that. <laughs> train Godzilla. Yes, exactly. It was, a, it was the dicey job. <laughs> we had a couple of dogs that we needed to train and some pigs. And you know what's the life of me? I actually can't remember what the pigs had to do. Big you know, pigs. we had to train them. It's like that episode of The Simpsons. Cows look like horses on set and pigs look like Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was here for the whole summer in 2013 and just loved it. I've been here years before. I've worked on a movie called Six Days, Seven Nights on Hawaii, again with a pig. But when I was leaving, I went to the production office and said goodbye to the local production people. And... I said, I want to go. And they said, well, you know, why don't you move back here and start your own company? Because there's nobody here that does what you do. We always have to buy trainers in and people to train, you know, animals for movies and stuff. So I went home and I thought about it and I was like, yeah, that's it. I'm moving to Hawaii. And I met a guy, which that helped. So, (laughs) (laughs) so I kind of had a boyfriend that lived here as well. That's always a good motivation to move. So yeah, I rented my house out and moved in with a friend to save money. And then January of 2014, I get a phone call from one of the local production people, the one, one of the ones that actually told me to move back here. And they had uh, Jurassic World was heading here and they needed pigs trained. If you need pigs trained, I'm your woman. Um, so they said, uh, you know, it's your job if you want it. If you're going to move here, why don't you move here in January? So I came out here and trained, I think it was like six or eight little pigs for the scene where Chris Pratt has to, do you remember when he uses the clicker in the movie? Yeah, non-stop clicking in the Yeah, click, 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 button, button, button. <laughs> so I don't know what or who told him what to do with the clicker. Because when I watched that, it wasn't me. I was like, what is he doing with that clicker? But the dinosaurs come out and he he calls them into the arena and and he has to show that he has control over them. So he has the pigs, a pig, run into the arena. And then he has to prove that he can control them with a a food source running by in front of them. So that was where the pig came in. I don't think they actually the final edit actually had as much as we shot. We shot a lot with the pigs. And then, um, you know, as always, they overshoot everything. And then when they put it together, they don't use it. But we actually had to fly the pigs to New Orleans to shoot the rest of the scene in the actual arena with the dinosaurs. (laughs) So, yeah, that was my first job as my new company here in Hawaii. And I never looked back. So... Something we've said to each other a million times, these fucking Dobermans. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about Uh, that. Yeah. Well, thankfully for me, pretty soon after all Jurassic World and everything, I got in on Hawaii Five-0. So that was really cool because they always had animals. In fact, the producer, when I met him through a friend, he was super excited because for years, they've either had to bring a trainer in from L.A., at great expense or just write out whatever animal action they thought they needed in the show because it just didn't work when they used local people who didn't know what they were doing. So that opened a door and it was the same production people as Magnum PI. And so when Magnum came 
the rumor was around for a couple of years before it actually they shot the pilot. So what I had done is my friend in LA had a Doberman, a studio trained Doberman. And I went ahead and got all the blood titer and, you know, everything that the same as you guys, you know, were a quarantine rabies free Island. So you have to go through a jump through so many hoops to get dogs and cats to fly here. So at the time it was 120 day quarantine but if you got all the paperwork and you did the rapist title and everything in advance, then you didn't have to do that. You could just fly the dog in. So I went ahead and got my friend Chrissy's Doberman done. So if suddenly Magnum PI popped up on the scene, then I'd have one. And sure enough, out of the blue, one day I get a call and they're shooting the pilot. And so I went out and found through my friend who's a local pet trainer somebody's pet Doberman. So I started off with the, the studio trained one from LA that would fly out for all of season one was that dog. And then this pet that I trained and that was interesting in and of itself. Um, <laughs> the first scene we ever shot, the two dogs got into a fight. <laughs> they were two in, <laughs> they were two intact males and the writer. Oh my gosh, this is Liz cracks me up. So the writer, they wrote in the scene where the dogs are playing tug of war. They pick up the Magnum's towel. They're playing tug of war with each other. And later on, he's like, well, I was just sitting on my patio watching my dogs play tug of war with a rope toy. And I just thought it would be a good idea. And now, thankfully, these people actually pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, can the dogs do this? Not in a pilot episode when you've got two weeks to find two Dobermans that can do it. So yeah, we had these two intact males that had never met, never been around each other and had been given each other the stink eye through all of our training. And we begged them, we said, please schedule this tug of war the last, at the end of their shoot days. So if anything happens, we don't have to deal with it through the rest of the shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. We'll see. We'll see if we can work that out. And then when I got the shooting schedule, it was the first day. It was the first, not only the first day for the dogs, it was the very first scene of the entire pilot. Like, Hey, here's Sue, our dog trainer and the Dobermans. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and Chrissy's dog was good. He had a fetch hold and carry. So she could actually tell the dog to fetch and hold the towel in its mouth. My dog as a pet dog, I didn't have enough time to put a, a retrieve on it where I could tell him to fetch and hold. So I was rigging up all these things. I had like pieces of cheesecloth with chicken sewed into the towel and I would get him on the corner of the towel and then he would pull on it to try and get the chicken out and then Chrissy would throw the towel the other end in the other dog's mouth and then we would like try and step out of the shot it was madness <laughs> and and the whole time we're just like this is going to end badly and so we did I think two takes and then they just were like and they just went up on their hind legs and it was one of those fights thankfully that their teeth never actually touched each other. You know, it was just one of those vocal hind like legs. chickens, wrapping. two male roosters going at each other. Yes. Mm. And Chrissy and I didn't say a word. We just silently walked in, grabbed our respective dogs by their collars, pulled them away. I turned to the director and said, so do you want to try that again? <laughs> we tried it again. <laughs> we got the shot, but that was not the way I wanted to start that. And I just feel like every turn we've made on that show. So then... I went and got my own dogs. I got two European working line Dobies. I had them shipped out for season two and trained them. And it's just been 
a lot of alcohol and drug taking from me during <laughs> 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 the training of those dogs. They've been a challenge. They're sweet. I love them. There's times I don't like them. They will just do the most random shit that I've just like, where the hell did that come from? Like I've <laughs> crazy. This was not the fault of the dog, but we were doing a scene where the dogs had to, they've chased Magnum up a tree and they're sitting underneath this big branch barking at him. And before he climbed up into the tree, I'd climbed up there and I'd broken off these little dry little jerky treats and I'd stuck them in the bark of the tree so that he had something to throw down and reward the dog. So I told the actor, I said, Jay, when you get up there, there's all these treats out there. I said, so when we cut, you just throw the treats in opposite directions and they'll just go out and get their treats and we'll pick them up and reset them. And it went fine and they were good. And then when he climbed down the tree, unbeknownst to me, he had picked out all the remaining treats and he had about 14 of them in quite big 14 treats in his hand and he's walking away and we're walking back to our van and we've got about three hours before we're going to shoot a different scene on the stage. We're driving back to the studio and he's like, Hey Sue, yells, he's like, can I give, can I give the dog a treat? And I stopped and the wheels turned in my head. And there's so many times when I feel like I mean to the crew and the actors, because I'm always like, no, don't touch the dog. Don't look at them. You can't pet them. Go away. <laughs> and I thought, really, is it going to hurt anybody if he gives the dog one treat? And I'm like, shit, Sue, I'm saying, talking to myself, Sue, just be nice for once. <laughs> just let him give the dog a treat. Sure, Jay, sure. You want to give the dog a treat? No problem. So I walk over the, the one dog to him and he opens up his hand to reveal 14 treats that is immediately inhaled in one go. And I yelled, I mean, it was, it's funny now. And he laughed, everybody laughed. But at the time I was, I would just say, Jesus Christ, Jay, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, looked at me and I go, I thought you had one treat, not 14. We've got to go shoot a whole nother scene <laughs> in the studio. And so he was mortified and he's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't think and I'm like, it's fine, whatever. So three hours go by, we're at the stage, it's in the office. The dogs just have to sit there. They don't have to do anything, which is ended up being the bane of my existence was those two dogs just having to sit there for like three pages of dialogue. They just always felt like they had to be doing something else. Yeah, the one dog from that point on, that was her man. He walked into the room, she would just get up, walk over to him. And you, so you've got four cameras on, the actors and two of the cameras are only from like the waist up. Right. So if the dog messes up in the scene and it's a two or three page piece that they're shooting, they're going to keep rolling, even though the dog's messing up because they can still get two cameras worth of action going. Right. So when the dog walks over the two cameras that are on the dogs, they're just like, okay, we're done. We'll just pick it up on the next take. But the two that are up high, they're fine. Well, in the meantime, this dog is standing at Jay's feet and he's petting her the entire time she's standing there. So not only did she break away from her mark, but now she's being rewarded again. So this was this constant little cycle of her just going through this where, yeah, it was a battle. And that wasn't the only thing. They were just, they were quirky and bizarre. They're not my favorite breed. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we've I got ourselves remember. in trouble on this show quite a few times over those comments. <laughs> um, we're, we're down that hole anyway. I can yeah. remember when you first emailed me, I was in a movie. It was like a kid's movie. Me and Jane and Rip were there. And so like, I wasn't really watching the movie. I'm just sitting there and I got this email and I'm reading it. And I remember you saying that you had trained the Dobermans for Magnum PI. And I laughed out loud in the cinema. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> what a job that would be. Good luck. And then I was like, and I'll bet she's having problems with bite work. And then I continue on through the email and it's, it's like, oh, you know, there's issues with getting them to grip things. And I was like, <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> I, mean, I say that they were an issue. They had a lot of training on them and individually not on set. They could do a lot of things, but of course, put the of course. two of them together. That was the biggest problem is a, it was me working two dogs because I don't have a trainer here that is competent enough to like work the second dog. So I'm working two dogs and they feed off of one another. So it actually got to the point sometimes when if one bumped the other one, they were like, yeah, you want to go for it? Let's do it. And they would just do zoom is, you know, if one just <laughs> knocked into the other one, it was nuts. They gave me a lot of gray hairs, but they, <laughs> It was hard. And the actress, thank goodness, everyone on that show is amazing. Like they were all so good. But Purdy, who plays Higgins, was the amount of times I just shoved food, food into her hand and said, go on, go. <laughs> and um, she's just been so helpful and so nice and does not care if she's getting drooled on or jumped on or whatever. We laugh though and we joke, but you did an incredible job with those dogs. Like some of the stuff that even when you were talking at the time about how they had to recall them to the heel, one on the left, one on the right with the, the chick sitting in the chair, like that's a tricky thing to do. And they always spin around and then sit in the correct way. Like that's for you to train two dogs to do that and have them both do it on cue for someone else. Like that's a complex task, man. Yeah, they had the go with is an off leash heel that studio dogs are commonly trained to do. So they were both trained to walk on either side of her. So wherever she was, the dogs were never on leash. So they always walked on either side of her. When she stopped, they would sit. And quite a few times in the early season, she would walk out into the courtyard, Magnum would pull up and they'd have a conversation. And so they would step from her out in front of her and like growl or bark at him. And then she would say, all right, lads, you know, to recall them back to her. And then they would, return to their respective sides but yeah i had to train them because they both wanted to turn to the left and go back they'd go to the, the correct sides but they would run in that was what i was having a problem was is they'd run into each other that was one of the times when they would actually run into each other and it was like all bets were off if they touched each other it was just the weirdest thing it's like one bumped into the the other one and they would just be like party you know big party so i had to set up a and just do so many repetitions. I can't tell you how many repetitions. It was just, I felt like I was just going crazy, just ingraining it in their head to do the right turn away from each other to return into the heel position on each side. So we had to wear little snarl devices, which is like the little retainer that goes in their mouth that makes it look like they're snarling. And they did a couple of little arm hits, you know, bad guys jumping, grabbing their arm and they have retrieves and... They have a lot of training on them. It's just really yeah. frustrating to work them when you're when you're one person working two dogs at the same time. Yeah, I bet that was a huge part of the challenge, regardless of what breed they are. Yeah, just working two dogs at once mm. as a performance on set would be super difficult. 
it'll be later by the time this comes out, but the Super Bowl was today. And that was what triggered me. I was like, I can't believe we've never got Sue on the show to talk about this stuff because tell us about your involvement with Budweiser and throughout all the, the commercials that they've done for the Super Bowl. Yeah, the one today is either my fourth or fifth Super Bowl, Budweiser Super Bowl commercial. So back in 2013, in December 2013, we shot what is called Puppy Love, which everybody loves. is the, the Clydesdales and the Labrador puppy, and they all go to their new homes, and the Clydesdales want to get them back, and the puppy's trying to get back to the farm. And it was amazing. Like it was such a cool, fun experience. We had eight puppies that were just incredible. That's always the fun part. Puppies are my favorite, favorite, favorite thing to do as far as like training for jobs, for commercials, for movies, whatever. I've done more period of puppy child commercials than I can count. But going to a breeder and saying like, we need your eight, eight week old puppies can you please call all your prospective owners and tell them they are not going to get their puppy at eight weeks old. They're going to be a month late and take off with their whole litter. So myself and my best friend, who's a trainer at Studio Animal Services, Deborah Delasso, we would split the litter. She had four, I had four, and we trained them in 30 days to do retrieves, hit a mark, bark, go with, do all kinds of crazy stuff. And that was the first commercial with a Labrador puppy called Puppy Love. And then that was such a hit that the next year they did Lost Dog, which was, again, a Labrador puppy. We got eight puppies. And again, we trained them to do a bunch of, of cool stuff. And that was popular as well. And so this one came about very last minute. We shot it. I always thought, because we normally shoot Super Bowl commercials in December. And the Super Bowl is the first week in February. I always thought shooting them in December was crazy last minute, but they actually called us this. We shot this. I went to LA January 5th. So they were waiting until the very last second to do this particular commercial. So the horse trainers are always the same. Robin and Kate Wilshire, they're actually Australian. They live in Wyoming and they've been doing the Budweiser Clydesdale training for, gosh, I don't even know of any other trainers that have done it since I've been in the business. So Budweiser shows up at their ranch with <laughs> a trailer full of Clydesdales. And that's an interesting story in it, of itself is that they, I just found out that they don't get to choose which Clydesdales. So Budweiser just shows up with whichever ones that are available. Here you go, train them. Wow. And so there are some that are super, super well-trained and they've done trick training with and everything over the years. And they have no idea whether that's going to be one of the ones they're going to get. Like, so this particular commercial, they had a lot of green horses that had never been on set before. And they had to train a horse to lay down in the stall because it was injured. They were the ones that said to call and check out me to see if I was available. And I got the call. They said, we're looking for an adult dog. They never really said, you know, they didn't really specify a breed or anything. And I said, well, really, the only dog that I could submit would be my lab, Eddie. And it was one of the quickest, easiest casting scenarios ever because I sent them the pictures of Eddie and they were, it was right before Christmas. And then after Christmas, they came back and they're like, yeah, we love Eddie. We'll take Eddie. And I'm like, that never happens. Even if they love a dog, you've sent a picture of, picture of one dog, they'll go, we'd like to see some other options. Like what else have you got? You know, and then they'll want to see like 20 other dogs and then they'll come back to the first one. But 
never happens that you just send them one picture. So they picked Eddie. And next thing I know, I am flying to California and I meet up with the horse trainers. And yeah, we shoot this commercial that aired today during the Super Bowl called Clydesdale's Journey. It was super fun. It was a super great experience. Eddie's such an amazing dog. And even though he never actually had to do any interaction with the horses, he was raised around horses and he, I live on a ranch, so he's around them every day. But we were really hoping to have a little scene in there with the two of them in the stall together where he goes in and lays down. We kind of rehearsed it. We kind of trained it. But the horse that they were using for that particular scene was a green horse that had never been on set before and had never been trained to lay down. So I think it was just a little bit too much in the end for the horse to have to deal with the dog coming in and laying next to it in such a confined space. Cause we were in a real barn in a real stall, but we did train it and rehearse it a couple of days. And yeah, I just put a mark kind of close to the horse and just send Eddie in and he can work away from me. So he can go hit a mark and, I can tell him to sit down, put his head down on his side without him looking at me. So, you know, I don't have to be in there. I can just send him in. So it's kind of bummed we never got to do that, but it's still cute. I don't want to put a downer on the whole thing, but I was so bummed that Eddie wasn't playing one of the Labrador puppies that was returning back. <laughs> when you were going to do that, I was like, yes, that has to be the story. It has to be one of those puppies going back to the, back to the farm, but didn't happen. I know. Well, there was actually a meme that I saw today and it said it was a picture of the first Budweiser commercial with the puppy where the puppy's sitting there looking up at the horse with his head over the stall. And then a picture of Eddie with him holding the lead rope in his mouth with the horse. And I think it was like how it started, how it's going. I uh, was the meme, but yeah, they never actually, yeah, it was just a coincidence. They never inferred that it was the same job. Yeah. Man, you've done a lot of stuff, Sue. It's uh, yeah. it's a lot of cool <laughs> stories. I'm sure we could talk forever, but my Rona's kicking in and I'm, <laughs> I'm getting ready to go to bed. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really mm. appreciate you spilling your beans on it all. It's really fascinating stuff. And I think that it's a side of the industry that um, we just don't have a lot of insight into. I think that when, you know, you've done a little bit of it, as you're saying, like you kind of do that or you do something else, you know, it's not something that too many people kind of dabble in and the people that do it tend to just kind of do that. Um, so yeah. it's really fascinating for me. I remember every time that we would talk, I'd be like, I'm shooting from left field here because I don't know. I don't know anything about this. I know dog training, but I don't know fuck all about training for that and all the extra parts that's going to be involved in it. And the, like the rates of reinforcement that you can, you know, uh, successfully achieve on set, you know, considering all the things that are going (laughs) on. It's crazy. It's super fascinating. I'd love to get you on again to talk about it in more depth and talk like your story is fascinating, but I also want to then tease apart some of the, the training specific stuff and maybe talk even about a specific case, like a specific thing you trained an animal for. That would be really cool. Right. Yeah, I know. Cause you guys were talking in a couple of episodes ago about during training sessions, when you have to give your dog, it's dog's full attention, give your full attention. You had somebody coming up into the park and asking you questions mm-hmm. about whatever. And you're like, I'm training my dog. And I thought about that. And I'm like, that's kind of like exactly what happens to me on set we cut and I want to go up to the actor and have everybody just shut the hell up and have the dog get rewarded and stay in, you know, focus on the dog and what his behavior was and having the actor. And that doesn't happen. Mm. Like nine times out of 10, that never happens. Everybody just walks off in different directions. And even if you ask them, 
not to. So it's super hard. But yeah, that's a huge part of it. I say there's so many things that it's hard doing this job. I wouldn't do anything else. <laughs> and I make it sound like it's terrible to do. It's so much fun and it's such a cool job and I love it. Otherwise I would not have been doing it for 28 years, but there yeah. are so many parts of it. It's just like you, at the end of the day, you just walk away and go, why can't I just work at Walmart? <laughs> It'd be a lot easier. I've got a story for you before we do the official wind up. Years ago in Australia, we had a, a pretty serious dock dispute on all our trading docks around the east coast of Australia. It was called the Patrick Stevedores case where the the unions were very, very powerful and the owners of the docks, at one stage, they just got sick of their bullshit. So they basically said, all right, we're locking you all out and we're bringing in casual workers to take your positions because they just literally got sick of them doing blockades and stopping goods and so forth from going in. So my colleague who has been on the show before, Boyd, I worked for him for years and he mentored me in a lot of dog training, he rang me up one day and he said, mate, I need you and some other good men, you know, to come down and work on the docks with us and it's pretty serious. It got so serious we had to like drive our cars into an unknown location, get a boat to pick us up, drive us into a ladder and we literally had to throw our dogs over our shoulder and climb up the ladder and then go on site so we could get on the job without being assaulted or accosted or whatever we had to do. It was pretty hairy. There were nights there where, I'm not going to lie, it was a pretty hairy sort of job, you know, like we had people pulling guns on us and all sorts of stuff. Even though they say they never did it, they did all the villainous stuff. We had escape plans and everything, so it was quite an adventure. And when it sort of came to a head, there was one time where the wharfies really got shitty and they came down this alleyway where the main gates were and it was me and 19 other guys with their dogs and all these wharfies and they brought it down pit bulls and they were, you know, we we're exchanging some pretty, we weren't, we were just holding a line, but they were pretty much threatening us that if we didn't move off, they were going to let the dogs go. And then they were going to do all this sort of stuff to us. And it's all the, all the usual yada yada that goes on in those sort of situations. We had to obviously keep our identities quiet, not talk about the job to anybody because they were looking for us outside the job. And it was quite hairy. So many, many, many years later, my good friend and early puppy mentor, a lady named Kylie Bright, who still does a lot of animal wrangling work here in Australia, she rings me up and she goes, hey, Cookie, by any chance, would you be interested in doing this movie with us? It's a local production, Australian production called Bastard Boys. And I said, what's it about? And she said, the dock dispute. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. And I said, where is it? And she goes, on the docks. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, yeah, okay. And she goes, I need you and some of your friends, if you've got some good people who have got some roddies, come down and, and do it with us. And I said, yeah, I've got two good boys that I'll bring down. I said, they've got pups of mine and they're pretty good dogs. You know, like I'd been training them as working dogs and they were pretty good because we had to do all the agitation and bite work and everything like that because of what went on in the docks. So I'm there, we're there for a couple of days and I'm sort of, you know, it was fun. We were walking around and I was showing the boys all the areas that we were and where the sieges were and all the fun stuff. And this old dude walks up to me and he goes, how you going, mate? And I said, yeah, good, buddy. How are you? And he goes, oh, you're doing the movie? I said, yeah. And he goes, lucky you're not one of those original pricks that came down on site. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, oh, I was here in the day and, you know, those bastards come down and locked us out of our own workplace. And he got, <laughs> he got all grouchy with me and I said, yeah, stuff those guys, real bastards. Huh? <laughs> and I'm sitting here like sweating a little bit thinking. <laughs> so he was one of the original dudes that was on the site when I was down there. So it was history oh repeating God. itself all over again. And I, I just had to pretend that I was just some clueless actor with my dog on site. <laughs> Were you an extra in it? Were you actually in it, Glenn? Yeah, yeah, I was in it. I was a dog handler in it. It's called Bastard and, and Boys. Rebecca, it was 
And was that guy in it? No, he wasn't in it. It was. It, uh, I was going to say that would be so good to have. <laughs> <laughs> it was. That it, actually happened. So, have you ever seen that show, Generation Kill? Have you ever seen? No. It's a TV show. It's about Marine Force Recon, who later became Marsoc and going into Iraq. They had a Rolling Stone reporter embedded with them, and he wrote a book about it, and then they made a series about it. And there's quite a few people in that who play themselves. Mm. Uh, and there's one guy, the gay guy in the company, uh, Fruity Rudy, he plays himself. And so like, there's a few really interesting things where people, it, it's not uncommon in war movies when guys are out and then they're making it and they're like, we need extras. Can you be in it? And they're like, yeah, but only if I get to play myself. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> all right. Hey, Sue, how can people get in contact with you? Give us all your, all your info if you want them to. Well, I'm on Instagram. I'm at Tailsticks. And also my, actually my dogs have a bigger <laughs> Instagram following than I do. So that's hawaii.dogs.oncbs. Yeah, that's probably the easiest way. My website, if you want to see what my credits and what I've done is www.checkthegate.net. That's it. Where can people buy your book? On Amazon. I think it's an audio book as well as uh, paperback. Say the title again. I was going to send you one, but it was going to cost me $75, so you're not getting one. (laughs) So what? Shipping was insane. Mm. From the States What's the title, Sue? What's the title of the book? It's called A Famous Dog's Life. And it's by myself, Sue Tripton, and Rennie Dieball is the actually the lovely woman who wrote it. Actually, wrote it. I just told her stories. Yeah, this podcast. It's the best it. way. Just lay yeah. there and tell someone some stories. But yeah. yeah. Hey, thanks so much for your time. I know it's thank like you. Why it's the middle of night yesterday, but I uh, really appreciate you doing it. It's been a fun conversation. No, it's fun. Thank you. Yes. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do all that through whatever subscription service you download us from. As we always say, the best way to pass on the message is just like pull your ear pod out and put in someone else's ear, preferably a stranger, and say, hey, you got to hear this. This is incredible. But another way is to like take a screenshot and post on your Instagram story or something like that. If you want to support the show, the best way to do it is Patreon. Jump in there. A few bucks a month gets you a giant backload of content as well as more stuff going forward. Uh, There's live streams in there and all kinds of stuff. I do that every month. Another way to support the show is to jump onto Teespring, get yourself some cool merch. You could rep our brand for us. That would be really cool. You could get socks, underpants, wall tapestries, all kinds of stuff. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do it is to jump into the Facebook group. That's the Canine Paradigm Discussion Group. Lots of cool conversations in there. You could search up some dog training advice if you're looking for some. Or if you've got something specific for me and Glenn, you can shoot us an email. We are info at the That's it. Goodbye.